Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, good morning, everyone. This is uh, Kennard Brown speaking. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God Biblical Instructional Program. Uh, I should be sounding uh, pretty clear here. I have a new headset, courtesy of Walmart. So for those who do what I do or you do telemarketing or do any other type of uh, work over the telephone, I suggest you get a nice headset from Walmart. Today is January 9, 2010. Again, my name is Kennard Brown. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God Biblical Instructional Program. As I'm going to do each and every week, I'm going to remind you to view two excellent documentaries online. The first is called The Fall of the Republic by Alex Jones. You can get this free documentary online by going to YouTube, by typing in The Fall of the Republic on their search engine, and you should uh, find the documentary is two hours and 24 minutes approximately. Also, the end game is around that time, too. Please look at those two documentaries to catch up on really what's really going on in the news right now and the reason why this country and, and the world is, is, is suffering and the reason why we have the rich a wide gap between the rich and the poor, as prophesied in the Bible. If you turn with me now to Proverbs chapter 30, this prophecy is being fulfilled. It has really started being fulfilled since the latter half of the 20th century, but it really has escalated to the point of being a major problem here in the 20th century. If you turn to Proverbs chapter 30, Proverbs chapter 30, starting in verse 14, in your King James Bible, it states here, there is a generation whose teeth are as sores and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. And that is the current situation right now in the world. You have the rich, the horrifyingly, incredibly rich people, and you have very poor people, quite a few that are living on less than a dollar a day. So that's the current world that we live in today. Now, we have been talking about <clears throat> what wives should do. And uh, before I even get into that, and I know you heard about the latest uh, terrorist attack scare and all that and, and so forth. That's all prophesied. The Bible, if you look at the um, Blessings and Cursings chapter of Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, terror has been predicted by God to be a part of of the reason why or the penalty for not obeying his law. So we should not be surprised by any of this. Anyway, just wanted to mention that. What wives should do. 
And this is part two of a very important Bible study. Uh, this all began with what husbands should do, and that is available in the archives. And now we're going to focus on what wives should do and hopefully conclude today uh, with this topic. Now, I left off talking about how not just a wife but anyone should have a spirit of being, wanting, wanting to be instructed. And we can just go ahead and start with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. This kind of summarizes what a woman should do. And I'm going to read this in the uh, complete Jewish Bible version for clarity's sake. And then we're going to hopefully complete this Bible study because there's many other things I need to talk about. And I have one hour and 25 minutes to do it. And because of the uh, all the things that I need to to talk about, I would like to accept calls, but I don't think I'm going to be able to today So because I have a lot of material that I have to, to cover. But if you have any questions, you can go ahead and email me at canard at mercifulserviceofgod.com. As I stated before, this is a very, very important Bible study, and I'm going to tell you what God said, what, what he wants us to do as husbands and wives. I'm not going to eisegesis and put my own thoughts into the Scripture and so forth. So so let's begin this part two Bible study with a synopsis of what God wants a woman to do and a wife to do. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, in the complete Jewish Bible version, it states, Let a woman learn in peace, fully submitted, not, uh, not submitted in a half-heartedly way, but in, in, in full submission. So a woman, she should not be a boisterous type of human being where she's always looking to, to out-talk a man and out-talk anybody for that matter. She should have a humble demeanor about herself and she should be fully submitted to her husband or anyone else that is her boss. But in verse 12, but I do not permit a woman to teach a man or exercise authority over him. Rather, she is to remain at peace. And what, why? Why is the reason for that? Well, in verse 13 of Timothy chapter 2, it says, For Adam was formed first, then Hava, which is the uh, Hebrew name for Eve. Verse 14, Also it was not Adam who was deceived or tricked, but the woman. So let's focus on this. It says that Adam was not tricked or deceived, but the woman who, on being deceived or tricked, became involved in the transgression. So she was involved. She was not the only one that sinned, but she became involved in the transgression. Now, verse 15 is an interesting scripture. It says, Nevertheless, the woman will be delivered through childbearing, provided that she continues trusting, loving, and living a holy life with uh, arrogancy? No, with modesty. Modesty. Okay, so that is something that a woman needs to really work on being modest. There's a lot of women out here that aren't modest. And let's, let me look this word up in the original Hebrew that it was translated in to, to get a full picture of what this is talking about. Uh, in the King James Version, it says sobriety. Now, in the original Greek for that is sophros one, and it means soundness of mind, that is sanity or self-control. Now, why would God say that the woman needs to, to be sane. Well, obviously, there are some cases in the Bible, particularly with Jezebel and a few others, where women became insane. So a woman needs needs to be modest or 
like I said, the Greek word for this is, is, is to be in self-control. So a woman, as well as a man, needs to work on it, but in this context, we're focusing on the woman. And this is in the context of her submitting to her husband. In the context of a woman not having a desire to teach over a man and to be have more authority over a man. The only man that a woman really should have more authority over is her own son. And that is the truth of the matter based on the scriptures. Um, a son is always um, commanded to obey his, his parents in the Lord and one of the his parents is his mother. So my mother, I highly respect and always will obey as long as it has nothing to do with obeying, uh, disobeying the commandments. However, any other woman, uh, based on this scripture, I'm not going to feel comfortable about a woman teaching me, and let me explain it, teaching me in the sense of her having more authority over me. Now, there's nothing wrong with a woman teaching me how to cook, teaching me certain things she's learning in her home and all that. But when a woman's trying to teach in a congregational setting, as I've explained last week, in a group setting, even in the secular setting of, of being a, a general in the army and, and all that, that's not a woman's place. And I can prove that out of the Bible. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 20, there's no case in there where it says a woman should be in the army. In the first chapter of Deuteronomy, if you look in there, not one of the judges, and we're going to get to the Deborah situation, because I know that's one, one uh case where women try to justify say hey i can be a judge and all that well if that's the case it would have been a normal occurrence deborah's appointment as a judge as i'm going to explain was a very unique situation it was in a situation an environment where everyone was doing things right in their own eyes that was the the context of the period of the judges where where god had to raise up a judge all the time to get them straight because the people were rebelling against God, and they were doing things. If you look at the last chapter of Judges, it states, well, I'll, I'll read it to you right now. Let's turn to Judges. It says uh, in verse 25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Okay, and that was the kind of environment that Deborah was raised up. And when we go over this story today, you, you'll see that she was trying to provoke the men to be men, in particular Barack. So I'm going to go over that here um, in this program. But I just wanted to start out with that scripture. And let's continue on here. Okay, so we know what what God expects out of a woman, and, and we know that... Um, that was another scripture that I quoted here in reference to, uh, let me see, where is it here? I think it's further down here. I don't think I even got to it. Okay, I'll get to this scripture later. Actually, yeah, Titus 2, verse 3 to 5. I'll get to that later on today. But anyway, all right, so let's let's go and, and focus on what I just um, quoted here. Now, as I was explaining to you last week, when a, a husband... Just like Christ teaches his church, so does a husband teach his wife. Because, as I explained last week, uh, the church is similar to Christ, and the Christ is similar to church, and the wife is similar to the church, and the church is similar to the wife. Okay, that, that's just the way it is in Ephesians chapter 5, verses uh, 22 to 24. But actually, that whole segment there, let me turn it here real quick and give you the whole section. Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, starting in verse uh, tw uh, 22 
32:33, where he says in verse 32, "This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church." So Christ and the church is um, symbolic, or it is an analogy with the, the Christ and the church with a husband and a wife. Okay. Now, as I just mentioned, as far as women becoming judges, women being on the Supreme Court, is that something that God approves of? No. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, starting at verse 9. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 9. And I spoke, I spake unto you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear you myself alone. This is Moshe, or Moses speaking to the eternal God, saying that he could not bear the burden of just being the, the one judge of, of all of Israel. And all of Israel at that time was close to one to two million people. If you count the children that they had, it was like 600,000 times they probably had two or three kids. So it was probably close to 1.5 to 2 million people that he had to deal with. And, and Moses, as humble as he was, because God said he was the meekest person on the earth at that time, he said he couldn't deal with it. And then verse 10, The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day as the stars of heaven for a multitude. As I just said, they were probably in the millions of people. Verse 11, The Lord God of your fathers made you a thousand times so many more as you are, and blessed you as he has promised you. How can I myself alone bear your cumbrance and your burden and your strife? And let's look that up in the original Hebrew to get a better understanding of that. Deuteronomy chapter 1, starting in verse uh, 12, states this. It says, how can I myself, oh, wait a minute, let me switch it over to complete Jewish Bible version here. It says, uh, but you are burdensome, bothersome, and quarrelsome. So, again, from last week, you, when we studied Ezekiel chapter 3, one of the characteristics of the children of Israel, which includes the United States and Britain and all the countries of northwestern Europe and, and Australia and New Zealand and South Africa, uh, as I explained last week, those are the geographical areas in the world that have the most distribution or have the most Bibles, including the Middle East. And uh, he says that we are burdensome, bothersome and quarrelsome, and in other parts of the Bible he calls us stiff-necked. So we're stiff-necked and, and, and rebellious people. And we were back then and we still are today. <laughs> and then he says right here, how can I bear it by myself alone? Verse 13, pick for yourselves from each of your tribes men who are, does it say women first of all? Okay, in verse 13 it says, pick for yourselves from each of your tribes men who are wise, understanding, and knowledgeable. And I will make them heads over you. He, Moses does not state that he's going to take a woman and, and have a woman be heads over you. He says, men, men, men. Verse 14, you answer me what you have said would be a good thing for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, men, not women, wise and knowledgeable, and made them heads over you, leaders in charge of thousands of hundreds of fifties and of tens and of officers, tribe by tribe. In verse 16, at that time I commissioned your judges, hear the cases that arise between your brothers, and judge fairly between a man and his brother and the foreigner who is with him. In verse 17, you are not to show favoritism when judging, but give equal attention to the small and to the great. No matter how a person presents himself, don't be afraid of him because the decision is God's. The case that is too hard for you, then you bring to Moses, or, or to me, because you know, he's talking about himself, to me, and I will hear it. Okay, so the key verse to this is verse 15, 
So I took the heads of your tribes, men, not women, wise and knowledgeable, and made them heads over you, leaders in charge of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and officers, tribe by tribe. This is not just talking about religious leadership. It's also talking about secular, outside of religion, leadership. This is the truth that you probably won't hear out of too many ministers' mouths today. But this is, is the governmental structure that God has designed, and this is only confirmed by 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. I don't care what commentaries tell you. This means exactly what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Case, to prove my point, has it worked the other way? Has it worked with women having uh, judgment, ability, and, and responsibility in this world? Have we uh, been able to promote peace and have peace because of that? Of course not. First um, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. This confirms Deuteronomy, the, the section of Deuteronomy that, that I read to you. First uh, Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of, the, of Christ is God. So again, this is a governmental structure that will be in the future when God's kingdom comes back, or God rules over this earth. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. So my boss is Christ. Any other man's boss is Christ, not a woman. And the head, except his mother, and, and the head of the woman is the man. The head of the woman is the man. Again, the head of the woman is the man. It doesn't say that the head of the man is the woman. It says that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. So this only confirms uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 9 to 15. Now, there's an interesting scripture in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12. It's a prophetic scripture. Let's turn to that. And then I'm going to show you some stats or some proof, secular proof, outside the Bible that will prove to you that women, unfortunately, women's lib or feminism is contributing to the destruction of society. Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12. says, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them, dominate control over them. O my people, they which lead thee, cause thee to error. Now this is God's words, ladies and gentlemen. This is not my words. So if you start to, particularly you women that are listening to this, if you start getting angry, you better get angry at God, not at me. I'm just quoting you scriptures. This is in your own King James Bible. Okay, Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12, as for my people, and this is a prophecy, it was true back then, it's true today, as for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Now, did he say something positive about women ruling over them? No, he doesn't. He says, oh, my people, they which lead thee, who leads thee today? Children and women. That's the wrong type of people to be ruling over men, ladies and gentlemen. And unfortunately, that's the way it is in this country and uh, in, in the other Israelitish countries uh, and then also in certain parts of the world. So he says, O oh, my people, they which are children and women, which lead thee, cause thee to error and destroy the way of thy path. Okay? And th again, women, this is in your own Bible. This is in your own Bible. And men, when you hear this, don't use this as an advantage to be a, a tyrant over your wives. Okay, this is just something that, unfortunately, the devil, as I've explained last week in other previous programs, has unfortunately deceived all of us in the area that feminism, 
and women's rights to to to, eat, to have a, um, to work like a man and all that. That is not biblical. A woman's place, a wife's place, should be in the home taking care of her children. That's where it should be. And, and, and that is the truth of the matter. And, and reading this in the, in the complete Jewish Bible version, it says, My people, children oppress them, and women are ruling over them. My people, your guides lead you astray and obliterate the paths you should follow. And that, 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 that's, that's a serious scripture. And, and you look up destroy in the original Hebrew, and it's bala. It, it means to make away with, to destroy, to devour, to eat up. To eat up. Now, a little disclaimer here. I'm not stating that all women are like this, but there's, there's a lot of women in this country that want to be president of the United States. We have, you know, Hillary Clinton, and right now she's Secretary of State, uh, a governmental position that she should not have um, based on the Bible. And, and there's other women that are jockeying for leadership positions that men should have. And God does not like that. He does not like that. Even in the first chapter, of Isaiah chapter 3, uh, the first verse, it says, and this is happening as I'm speaking, by the way, it says, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, let me read this in the complete Jewish Bible version, it states here, For see the Lord, Adonai uh, Tazayat, will remove, or uh, of hosts, will remove Jerusalem, or Jerusalem and Yehuda, uh, Judah, every kind of support, all reserves of food and water. That's what he's doing right now. This whole world right now, starting with the Israelitist countries, are um, starting to have economic chaos. And when you have economic chaos, it does involve food and water. And right now, he is removing from Jerusalem and from the other Israelitist countries all reserves of food and water. And when I mean Israelitist countries, I'm talking about United States, Britain, and the British Commonwealth of Nations, uh, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand and all those countries in northwestern Europe. To, for proof of that, please go to www.britam.com or .org. And you can go, also go to my blogtalkradio.com blog website, uh, www.blogtalkradio slash Brown, And then on the, I think it's on the center going down, uh, you, you'll see a link where it says the Ten Tribes of Israel. Click on that, and it'll give you biblical proof that, what I've been t telling you all along is true, that the United States and the British Commonwealth of Nations, New Zealand, Australia, uh, South Africa, and the countries of Northwestern Europe are a part of the ten tribes of Israel that supposedly are lost. It's not lost to me because God has revealed it to me, and he's, gonna, he's revealing it to you if you listen and believe. Anyway, so in verse 2, it says, He takes away all reserves of food and water, Heroes and warriors, judges and prophets, diviners and leaders, captains of 50, men of rank and advisors. Um, now, he should take away this. And, <laughs> skill from magicians and expert enchanters. Yeah, he's definitely. And, and in verse 4, he says, I will put children in authority. And uh, let me read this in another clear version here. Um, it says, and babes shall rule over them. Okay, and, and, that, and that is what's going on. And this word babes in the King James Version of, of verse 4, uh, vexation or tyrant, uh, we, we will have tyrants rule over us. And that's, and that's the way it's, it's getting, ladies and gentlemen, with this new world order and, and the elite. The tyrants want to rule us, and, and, and they're getting ready to. And, and verse 5, let me go back to the Jewish um, 
complete Jewish Bible version. It states here, And the people shall oppress one another, every man his fellow, and every man his neighbor. The child shall behave instantly against the age, and the base against the honorable. It says, verse 6, For a man shall take hold of his brother of the house of his father. Thou hast a mantle, be thou our ruler, and let this room be under thy hand. And that day shall he swear, saying, I will not be a healer. For in my house is neither bread nor mantle. You shall not make me ruler of a people. So we're in a situation now where men aren't motivated or desired to, to be the leaders that they should be. And, and then also in verse 9 here, which is prophetic, that's going on right now, and not only in Jerusalem but all other Israelitish countries, uh, the show of their continents, Doth witness against them. Let me read this. Uh, this is. Let me read this in the. Uh, uh, this is a description of the United States, ladies and gentlemen. That's that's what it is, basically. And 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 all the all the other Israelitish countries. It, it really is. Uh, in verse nine of Isaiah chapter three, I'm reading this in the uh, complete Jewish Bible version. Their very look witnesses against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. Now, what are the sins of Sodom? The sins of Sodom. Uh, as, as revealed in Ezekiel chapter 16. Let's turn there here real quickly. Ezekiel chapter 16. What are the sins of Sodom? Many people think it's just homosexuality. Well, no, it's, it's other things too. And I'm going to try to find this here. All right. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Ezekiel 16, 49 in the complete Jewish Bible version said, The crimes of your sister Sodom were pride and gluttony. And she and her daughters were careless and complacent so that they did nothing to help the poor and needy. They were arrogant and committed disgusting acts before me so that when I saw it, I swept them away. Now, those disgusting acts in that context, of course, was the, the final act that, that said that's it, uh, homosexuality. And that is found in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 19. So homosexuality was a part of Sodom. Uh, homosexuality is what caused Sodom to finally be destroyed. But the other sins of Sodom, which most people don't preach about, but I do, uh, is pride, being arrogant, and gluttony. We are the fattest nation in the world, ladies and gentlemen. Even God jokes, well, not, joke, not jokingly, but in a, in a succinct and, and, and exact matter, calls us fat. We, we are a fat nation. It, it, most people are overweight in this country. Uh, we were arrogant. We, we were full of gluttony. Uh, and may, may I add laziness right here? It says, she and her daughters were careless and complacent so that they did nothing to help the poor and the needy. Now, there are a few that are, but he's viewing this in a majority fashion. The majority of people in this country, according to God, don't care for the poor. How can I say that? Well, there's 49 million people, as I'm speaking right now, that don't have enough food. In this country, in this filthy rich country, not one person in this country who wants to work should not be starving. There's no excuse, none whatsoever. We have a, a general net worth of, or... Um, our um, gross domestic product is twelve uh, trillion dollars. That's a lot of money. We have the money to to help. And former um, presidential candidate John Edwards stated that we only would need twenty billion. That's twenty thousand million of monies per year to eliminate poverty in this country. So there's really no excuse why any American citizen in the richest country in the world who wants to work and, and is showing that they want to work, should not starve. There's no excuse. They should not be starving at all. And that's what God is angry about. That is, that is what God is angry about. So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 3. 
All right, and I just want to talk about this, so we need to understand the background of what I'm talking about here. All right, so let's go back, and if I have to do another program, I will, because <laughs> I'm not. I'm going to take my time with this. This is a very, very important Bible study. All right, so uh, getting back to, all right, so in verse nine it says they very look witnesses against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They don't even try to hide it. All the worse for them. So they don't, they don't try to hide the fact that they're lazy. They don't hide the fact that they're fat. They don't hide the fact that they're arrogant. They don't hide the fact that they want to endorse same-sex marriage. And he, sta and he states here in the complete Jewish Bible version, they don't even try to hide it. All the worse for them. They bring evil on themselves. Verse 10. And God states here, for the righteous is a few that are righteous, says, say that it will go well with the righteous, that they will enjoy the fruit of their actions, Verse 11, but woe to the wicked, it will go badly with him or her, for what he has done will be done to him. And then, of course, in this context, it says, my people, children oppress them, and women are ruling over them. My people, your guides, who are the guides? The children and the women lead you astray and obliterate the paths you should follow. And verse 13, Adonai rises to excuse. He stands to judge the peoples. Uh, Adonai means Lord. Verse 14, Adonai presents the indictment against the leaders and officers of his people. It is you who devour the vineyard. Who are the leaders and officers of his people? A lot of them are women and children in this context. It is you who devour the vineyard. In your houses is plunder taken from the poor. What did I just explain to you about the 49 billion people in this country that are starving right now as I'm speaking? In this filthy rich country and in all other Israelitish countries, including the nation of Israel, uh, worldwide. It is you who devour the vineyard, and your houses is plunder. What is plunder? Well, let's look at the um, original Hebrew here, if I can find it here. Um, the spoil, and it means uh, yeah, violently taking away or stealing. And that, that can be, of course, interpreted in, in many ways, but one of the major ways I think most, pe most of you can, can relate to is a the income tax, or the oppressive income tax system we're under right now, which we shouldn't be under, and uh, you need to, to view those documentaries to understand what I'm talking about there, but uh, uh, we should not be income taxed. Uh, that was something that was brought, uh, thrust upon the American people in a deceptive manner, um, and that's something you need to study and find out about. Anyway, if you want more information, I can email you more information. Just email me at canard at mercifulservantsofgod.com. Anyway, God prophesied that this would occur anyway, I think in 1 Samuel chapter 8 or 9, about if we desire a human leader uh, like the world or like uh, that, that does not want to obey the Torah or the law of God, that we would be oppressed in all kinds of fashions, including uh, financially. But anyway, in verse 14, uh, it says, It is you who devour the vineyard, and your houses are plundered, taken from the poor. It's talking about the women leaders as well as the, the, the children that rule over us, which are, and many of them are men. So it's not just talking about women ruling over us, but also men ruling over us. They both are devouring the vineyard, and their houses is plunder taken from the poor. It says, verse 15, what do you mean by crushing my people and grinding down the faces of the poor? Verse 16, moreover, the Lord says that night, because Israel's women are so proud, walking with their heads in the air, or Zion's women, which is a, um, a name for Jerusalem. And in this context, it's not talking about just the people of Judah, but also all the other tribes that are linked with them that will be joined with them. And this is a description of the American woman. How can you deny it? Uh, moreover, Adonai says, because Zion's women are so proud, even in Jerusalem they're like this, 
walking, especially uh, in Israel and in um, Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv, from what I heard from someone tell me, is no different from America. Because Zion's women are so proud, walking with their heads, and plus, again, the Jews are linked with America. You have, uh, outside of Israel, you have the most Jews that live in America. And the millions, uh, close to 6 million people you have right now, I think approximately 7 million people that are living in the nation of Israel right now in, in, in the Middle East. And then in America you have 5.5 million or close to 6 million. Anyway, verse 16 of Isaiah chapter 3. Because Adonai says, because Zion's women are so proud, so this is talking about women in, in Israel and Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem, also in the United States and Britain and, and the countries northwestern Europe and, and South Africa and, and, and uh, New Zealand are so proud, walking with their heads in the air, because where, where did the women get that from in Tel Aviv? They got it from America. We're linked with them. The Jews are linked with America, and America is linked with the Jews. Walking with their heads in the air and throwing seductive glances, moving in mincing, with mincing steps and jingling their ankles. Mincing steps. What does that mean? Isaiah it says right here, uh, with short steps. All right, uh, getting back to um, Isaiah 3, verse uh, 16. It says, verse 17, Adonai, the Lord, will strike the crown of the heads of Zion's women with sores, and, and, and the Lord will expose their private parts. On that day, the Lord will take away their finery, their anklets, their medallions and crescents, their pendants, their bracelets and veils, their headbands and armlets and sashes and perfume bottles and amulets and rings and nose jewels. Do you see women today in America? They have um, uh, nose jewels or something in their nose. I see that a lot. The earrings in their noses and all that. This is the description of the modern 21st century woman, ladies and gentlemen. Their fine dresses, wrap shawls and handbags and gall scarves and linen underclothes, turbans and capes. And then verse 24, then there will be instead of perfume a stench, instead of a belt or rope, instead of well-set hair, a shaved scalp, instead of a rich robe, a sackcloth skirt, and a slave brand instead of beauty. Your men... And unfortunately, in the context of all this, this is what's going to happen. We're going to have a war. War is coming up soon. Your men will fall by the sword, and your war is in battle. Her gates will lament and mourn, ravage. She will sit on the ground. And that, unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, is our destiny as I'm speaking, because we refuse to this very second not to collectively, in a, in a total manner, as a people, obey the law of Moses, which is the law of God. And that is the truth of the matter. Now, to support what I just stated, if we read uh, this article that you can easily Google, on Google, <laughs> women gain as men lose jobs. So you go ahead and type that in there as I'm speaking if you don't believe me. But this is a very significant event, I would say, in, in world, modern world history says, women gain as men lose jobs. And this is just verifying what, I just, what God has just stated would happen, what he just prophesied. Women gain as men lose jobs by Dennis Cochran, USA Today. And you can Google this, women gain as men lose jobs. Women are on the verge of outnumbering men in the workforce for the first time. Women are on the verge of outnumbering men in the workforce for the first time. It's a historic reversal. It's a historic reversal caused by long-term changes in women's roles 
and massive job losses for men during this recession. And what did God state in Isaiah chapter 3? That he would take away the stay of bread. And he's doing that. Women held 49.83% of the nation's 132 million jobs in June, and, they, and they're gaining the vast majority of jobs in the few sectors of the economy that are growing, according to the most recent numbers available from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's a record high for a measure that's been growing steadily for decades and accelerating during the recession. At the current pace, women will become a majority of workers in October or November. The data for July will be released Friday. So it says here, the change reflects the growing importance of women as wage earners, but it doesn't show full equality like it should. Anyway, on average, the women, women work fewer hours than men, hold more part-time jobs, and earn 77% of what men make, she says. Men also still dominate higher-paying executive ranks, like there's something wrong with them to do that. Uh, verse, not verse, but <laughs> section, says, women have been a growing share of the once heavily male labor force for nearly a century, recording big bumps during events such as the Depression and World War II. Of course, women have to work in, in that particular climate because all their men are being killed, so they have to get out there and work. But once there's enough men in society and men start acting like men, women, biblically, should work from the home and take care of their children and teach their children and teach their daughters, in particular, to be humble women and wives to their future husbands. That's a woman's role. And that role has been lost today because they want to seek a career. And it says, this time the boost came and your career is to develop godly children, women. That's your career. And your career is to support your husband, as the Bible reveals, not to separate you from your husband and be independent and compete against him. Anyway, this time the boost came from a severe recession that has been brutal on male-dominated professions such as construction and manufacturing. So anyway, um, you can read the rest of this, but I want to. this is a significant statement at the end of this article. It says, equality in workforce numbers reflects a long-term cultural change, says Maureen Honey, author of Creating Rosie the Riveter, a book about the government's campaign. And this is the government's campaign, ladies and gentlemen. This is the government's campaign to persuade women to work outside the home during World War II. So this has been a campaign since World War II, a strategy by the elite, by the New World Order, to influence women to get out there like men and to work like men. Uh, it says, the image that the man has to be the breadwinner has changed, honey said, and that is something that God is totally against. God states in his word that the man should be, should be the breadwinner. He should be the breadwinner. Now, let's look at some interesting information that Mr. Tim Hegg has written in his beautiful uh, and excellent uh, Bible study on what God has joined together. Biblical Foundations for Marriage. I highly recommend you go to his website. I'm giving him another plug because he deserves it. He did some hard work on this. Uh, com and get this. Uh, this um, please get this because it's going to do you some good. com. I have used some of his material for my Bible study. It's helped me tremendously. And I'm going to give him a plug, and rightfully so, and, and I encourage you to get his materials. All right, so page 50 to 51 of this, I have to read this because I totally agree to what he's saying here. Um, right here.
All right, starting on page 50 of this excellent uh, Bible study, it says, We are all affected by the society in which we live, and especially by the subtle but sometimes overwhelming philosophy or worldview that pervades a society. Like it or not, the spirit of the times is like a toxic substance that enters our thought processes through a kind of philosophical osmosis. The only hope for us is that we may take captive every thought and filter through the eternal, unchanging truth of God's revelation. And I totally agree with him on this. This is particularly true with regard to the feminist movement so prevalent in our times. This is not to suggest that the so-called feminist movement is entirely without merit or that the reasons for its growth are not real. It is clearly the case that when human society gives way to the base impulses of men, women are marginalized and misused. Or, to put it another way, when the ethics of the scriptures are rejected, women and children are the first and most evident to be affected. And that's very important to realize. In some ways, then, the current feminist movement is a reaction against abuse and marginalization by a male dominance within our own wayward society. And this is the wrong type of male dominance that he's talking about. But the current feminist movement is a reaction against such abuse, as I stated, from a most humanistic standpoint. It is an ungodly, and I agree with him, it is an ungodly response to a very real problem. The feminist movement is an attempt to raise the value of women by diminishing the value of men. Let me repeat. Let me underscore this. The feminist movement is an attempt to raise the value of women by diminishing the value of men. The only lasting solution to the problem of this problem is a return to God's truth about the relationship of male and female, something that can happen only when we submit to God in faith, and faith must have worked, and trust that his ways are right. How has the feminist movement in our times affected the way we think? First, the feminist movement strives for equality between men and women on the basis of personal independence. Let me underscore that again. First, the feminist movement strives for equality between men and women on the basis of personal independence. The value of a woman is seen as her ability to exist independent of a man, standing in her own value apart from anyone else. To this notion... We could apply the same assessment given by the Almighty in the case of Adam. It is not good for a woman to be alone. And I read you some scriptures last week that proves to you that a woman needs a man and a man needs a woman. They're not independent of each other. They are dependent on one another. That is the truth that the devil does not want to, you to understand. And as a servant of God, my job is to give you the truth. His job is to give you the untruth and give you uh, things to trick you and to to deceive you and to confuse you. My job is to unconfuse you. God's job through his servants, and I'm one of them, is to unconfuse you, to undeceive you. Anyway, so putting the emphasis upon the independent value of a woman, the feminist movement has fallen into the same trap of the enemy that snared Adam and Hava. God did not create us to be independent. He did not create any of a man to be independent nor did he create a woman to be independent. He created us for each other. Secondly, the feminist movement puts the emphasis upon personal achievement and is disgusted with the idea of serving others from a humble heart. So the feminist movement is like, we don't, we don't serve ourselves. We don't care about other people. It says, the very idea that a woman should humbly serve a man is considered to be the core problem. With, that, that's the core problem that the feminists always preach about. They're saying that it's, it's disgusting for us to humble ourselves before a man. Well, what does God tell you to do? 
uh, you know, not too many people in the world really care about what God says, okay? But it says, yet our master taught us that the one who serves is the greatest of all. And it's in Matthew 20, verse 26. Let's turn to that. You know, we are biblically illiterate in this country, and I covered that in my article, uh, The Famine of the Hearing of God's Word. Please read that, but many of us as a whole are biblically ignorant. And I'm suggesting that you not be biblically ignorant, ignorant meaning that you don't know, and start knowing what the Bible says. And start learning it. It's like you view your favorite television program or you play the Wii. You need to be desired to understand the Bible. Just the same or even more. The more desire. Just the desire that you have for other things. It should be equal or even more desire that you should have for the Bible. Anyway, Matthew chapter 20, verse 26. Matthew 20, verse 26. It says, and this is Christ's own words, among you it must not be like that. On the contrary, whoever among you wants to be a leader must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your servant or slave. Uh, and, and this is in a good context. So you women and men, if you want to be the head honcho, you better learn how to be the head servant. That's what your Lord and Savior states. Anyway, being a servant is not a menial position in God's eye, which the devil has successfully uh, deceived most of us into thinking that uh, being a servant is, is a menial position. It's not. It's a, it's a menial position to him because he has in his, his mind that he doesn't want to serve. He wants to serve himself. Anyway, being a servant is not a menial position in God's eye, but one of great value and worth. Page 51. This, of course, is just as true for men as for women. The characteristics of a godly husband are all grounded upon his willingness to be a servant to his wife. The characteristics of a godly husband are all grounded upon his willingness, men, to be a servant to his wife. But it is equally true, equally true for the godly wife. Colon. Continue the thought. She must realize that serving her husband is the path to true oneness. Again, let me underscore. She, you women, you wives that are listening to me, please listen to this for your own good. She must realize that serving her husband is the path to true oneness. Thirdly, and following close in the heels of this idea of a humble service, the feminist movement in our times has degraded the value of domestic tasks for women, domestic meaning to the home, the home has been forgotten today with most career-minded professional women walking around like a men, and some of them have ties on, okay, uh, and walking around with short hair when they could wear long hair and make themselves look more attractive. Women today are deceived into thinking that it's successful to be like men and to compete with men, and that is not of God. Um, trying to achieve equality with males by seeking similar roles with them, women have left the home despise motherhood and salt careers promising power and financial independence. The, the uh, Oprah Winfrey's of the world, the uh, Hillary Clinton's of the world, the, the, old, uh, the um, Condoleezza Rice's of the world with nice strong positions. I'm a woman now, shoot. Well, you're not a woman. That's not a woman, according to God. That's a woman that is trying to become a man, which personally... I'm not attracted to women like that. <laughs> and I think deep down inside, most men aren't attracted to women like that. So anyway, um, the effect of this shift in our society has not, however, resulted in women experiencing greater fulfillment and peace of mind. Again, let me underscore this. The effect of the shift in our society has not, however, resulted in women experiencing greater fulfillment and peace of mind. 
the increased stress upon women, the breakdown of the family, and the neglect of children have so fractured our society that one wonders if we have moved beyond the point of return. I feel personally, he may not agree with me, but I feel we have because we, to this very second as I'm speaking, we have not thought about collectively as a nation, as, as, as all the other Israelite nations, the modern nations of Israel, have not thought about repenting or changing from this attitude. So we have reached a, a beyond the point of return. What were accepted norms even 25 years ago have all but been forgotten, and as a result, our worldview has been reshaped and reinterpreted from presuppositions that are blatantly ungodly. Women who desire to fulfill their God-given role as set forth in the Scriptures must regain the high value put upon home and children. Consider how high and strategic is the divine call upon mothers who are able to mold and shape the very souls of their children and create a home where the shalom or peace of God provides a necessary solace in which a family can blossom and bear godly fruit. It is no exaggeration to say that the true Torah community has a cornerstone that work has has as a cornerstone that work of wives and mothers in fashioning and preserving their family, the very building blocks of community and society itself. So anyway, it is no exaggeration to say that true Torah community has as a cornerstone that work of wives and mothers in fashioning and preserving the family, the very building blocks of community and society itself. No career, regardless of its prestige within the society, no career. Let me drink some water here. I'm starting to lose my voice. Now, let me underscore. This is a very important statement that I'm going to make, women, for those who are still listening to me. Uh, please pay attention to this. No career, regardless of its prestige within the society, can equal the value of a diligent wife and mother who, with much wisdom and hard work, turns a house into a home. That is the career that the devil has successfully deceived women in the feminist movement to not know about. And that is the truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Finally, the feminist movement in our time has sought to degrade men. And boy, do I feel the effects of this to this day. <laughs> Let me underscore this. Finally, the feminist movement in our time has sought to degrade men. As a result, it is not uncommon in our times to see an emphasis against marriage and for singleness. Again, there is an emphasis against marriage and for singleness. Matter of fact, there's there's uh, emphasis now on same-sex marriage, <laughs> which is not marriage in according to God's size. Again, I do not mean to suggest that singleness is wrong. In fact, according to Paul, singleness may even be encouraged in some cases. Yet we know that God instituted marriage and that he has given it as the norm. So it is the norm in society for men to want a man and for a man to want a woman, for them to get married, have sex, and have kids, and have more sex, and have more kids, and have more, you know. That, that's, that's normal. That's normal. Sex is normal. And sex is good when it's done in marriage. Anyway, uh, again, the feminist movement, on the other hand, has sought to cast men in such negative ways to bring into question whether marriage is even desirable. For many feminists, men are a liability. Add to this that children are more and more raised in daycare. That's a real fine place to raise kids, by the way, daycare. Because mom is all pursuing her career, and we are left with no desirable model of family worth pursuing. Many children in our society have no idea what a godly marriage and home looks like. 
Why marry and have children if that only stands in the way of one's own career choices or if marriage and children only result in unending strife? Women who desire, and it's not too many of these, but women who desire to be godly wives and mothers must therefore seek diligently to retool their perspectives away from the prevailing societal uh, spirit of the times and bring them in line with the divine revelation of God's word. That's what we need to do. And that is an excellent commentary about this feminist movement that God has prophesied against in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12. And this is the truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And I'm telling you this, and I hope you believe what I'm telling you. Now, what is God's vision of a godly woman? Well, a godly wife. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 to 11, and I have 37 minutes left. It looks like I may have to do a part three, but we're going to do as many parts as we need to get this done. All right. So Proverbs chapter 31, starting in verse 10 to 31, because, women, you are a very important part of the fabric of society. You should be training your kids and teaching them to obey God. That is very important. That's why this Bible study is very important. And that's why I have to spend the time that's necessary to get this truth out to people on the Internet and I hope the entire world. Um, that's something that a miracle has to happen for that to, to occur. And, you know, God is a God of miracles, but we'll see. So anyway, when you hear this, if, if you understand what I'm saying and, and you seek to do things God's way, pass this information on to other people that you know and as many people that are struggling with their marriages. It'll help them. Help them to get their Bible out and look in the Bible and say, hey, all this guy does is quote the scriptures and he backs up the scriptures with secular outside the Bible facts. He is a true servant of God and he's telling you the truth. Just look in the Bible. If you don't believe, look in the Bible. Look in your own King James Bible. So anyway, Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31. Because we don't have that much time left, ladies and gentlemen. The things are getting tough here, and we need to stop all this deception. Stop living lives that are not <clears throat> in alignment with God and the way he wants things to be done. Now, in Proverbs chapter 31, starting in verse 10, it says, Who can find a capable wife? Her value is far beyond that of pearls. All right, so in verse 10 it says, Who can find a capable wife? Her value is far beyond that of pearls. Her husband trusts her from his heart. So a good wife allows the husband to trust her, to trust her, and she will prove a great asset to him. All right, so her husband trusts her from his heart, and she will prove a great asset to him. She works to bring him good, not harm, all the days of her life, she procures a supply of wool and flax and works with willing hands. So she's willing to work, and this is all centered around the home. She is like those merchant vessels bringing her food from, bringing her food from far away. So she's responsible, just like my beautiful wife is. She cooks fine meals, and I just love every drop of food she cooks. And she's very good at it. But unfortunately, my wife, because of the oppression, and I'm going to cover this, has to work. She doesn't want to have to get out here and work. And I'm doing all I can 
to, to, to make as much money as I can to support her. But because of society and the way it is, as I'm going to explain, women have to get out here and work, unfortunately. And my, my wife doesn't want to work. She wants to, to stay at home and continue to raise our 14-year-old teenager. But she has to do it. And I know some of you women deep down inside don't want to do the, the work. But you have to because your husband ain't making enough money, not because he's not doing all he can. It may be some cases where some of your husbands aren't, and then that's the case where the husband needs to, to, to get off his lazy behind and, and do something, okay? But for husbands like myself and others who are doing all he can to, to make money and still not, not, not being able to provide the financial support for the entire family, then the wife has to step out there and work. So this scripture can also be applied outside the home, too, in, in cases that we live in today. But God wants a woman to stay at home. That is the core and the key. And, of course, there are situations where she must have to get out there to help the family because of economic oppression that we're going through right now. And I'm going to cover that here with some secular material here in a minute. But anyway, but the overall goal is the family to work, the husband in particular, to work as hard as he can to finally bring his, his wife home. That's what I'm doing. Verse 11, her husband trusts her from his heart, and she will prove a great asset to him. And my wife is definitely a great asset, and I hope she's listening to this because, you know, I don't tell her too often, but she is a great asset to me. I don't know what I would do without her. I mean, I, I could survive, but it would be difficult because a man needs a woman and a woman needs a man, and this man definitely needs a woman. Verse 12, she works to bring him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She procures a supply of wool and flax and works with willing hands. So that tells you that she should be an expert at making her own clothes. And that way, if a woman gets into that lost art, I feel, of women being able to, to produce clothes by sewing, that, that would save the family a lot of money. Verse 14, she is like those merchant vessels bringing her food from far away. Uh, she is responsible for cooking the food and preparing the food and making sure there's a sufficient food supply. Verse 15, it's still dark when she rises to give food to her household and orders to the young women serving her. So she orders, and women, you do order. You have a lot of responsibility. You order young women serving you, and you order your children. So it's not like you don't have any rulership or leadership responsibility, but it's under demand. Verse 16, she considers the field and buys it. So you, 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 you buy stuff, and you, all you women love to buy, that's for sure. And God wants you to buy. He wants you to use the money that uh, your husband uh, produces and you produce if you have to get out there and work uh, to buy. <laughs> and from her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She gathers her strength around her and throws herself into her work. Let me, because uh, Tim Hague has done an excellent Hebraic uh, background teaching on this, on analyzing this. And I just wanted to point out what he stated here on page 59 of this. He says, she considers a field and buys it from her earnings. She plants a vineyard. This verse has been used by some as a basis for the women of the house engaging in business, in this case, buying real estate. But the Hebrew indicates something different. The word considers means to ponder or to plan. And by the way, Tim Hig is a Jew, so that's why I refer to him a lot. Um, the word considers means to ponder or to plan, and the word translated buys is actually the, the common word to take. What this indicates is not that she has her eye open for real estate acquisition, but that most likely she considers a part of the land the family already owns, which is currently unproductive, and reclaims it for productive land. We could imagine a rocky slope or parcel that is overgrown with weeds. She can contemplates how it could be better used and takes it or reclaims it. And then from her own earnings, she buys the seedlings and plants a vineyard 
where before there was only useless property. If we are to consider what this tells us of her character, it would speak to her creativity. The virtuous woman is not one who complains about not having enough room or enough space to do what she needs to do. On the contrary, with wisdom and creativity, she takes what others consider as useless and transforms it into something productive for the entire family. In our modern world, where most of us are city dwellers, this could be demonstrated by the creative use of space in our homes or reclaiming what others would discard. So that is the proper Hebraic understanding of that. All right? So, verse 17, she gathers her strength around her and throws herself into her work. She sees that her business affairs go well. Her lamp stays lit at night. And then let's understand what this is saying in the Hebraic background. Literally, the Hebrew says, she tastes that her profits are good. That is, she rejoices in the successes of her endeavors. She takes true delight in seeing that her work achieves its intended goal, like a merchant who counts the daily till and is glad by the profit he makes. So the virtuous woman is heartened to see the great benefit that comes as a result of her labors. Such a perspective only gives her new strength to continue on. If we were to put this in the realm of business, the virtuous woman acts like an entrepreneur rather than an employee. Let me state this significant and underscore this fact. If we were to put this in the realm of business, the virtuous woman acts like an entrepreneur rather than an employee. She has given herself to the success of her home to such an extent that she isn't watching the clock to see when she can finish. Her goal is to see the success of her labors, not simply to put in her time. So, she puts her hands to the staff with the flax, her fingers hold the spinning rod. I was just talking about that. The fact that she is an expert in um, making clothes and so forth. All right, verse 20. Verse 20. She reaches out to embrace the poor and open her arms to the needy. So this is the characteristics of a good woman as well. Um, let me read the Hebraic background of this on page 60 of this excellent uh, Bible study, What Has God Joined Together? Biblical Foundations for Marriage. She extends her hand to the poor as she stretches out her hands to the needy. Here she extends her hands parallel to the former grass, giving the sense of support and help. She likewise stretches out her hands or sends them to the poor. Here we see the virtuous woman is ready to help those in need, in spite of the fact that her day is essentially consumed with the needs of her own family. Let me point this out again. Here we see the virtuous woman is ready to help those in need, in spite of the fact that her day is essentially consumed with the needs of her own family. For the woman of valor... There is always room for one more at the table, and those in need find in her a helping hand. Outstanding woman here that God once envisioned. Verse 22, she makes her own quilt. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Again, the concept of having the ability to make her own clothes for herself and the family. Verse 23, her husband is known at the city gates when he sits with the leaders of the land. All right? Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She supplies the merchants with sashes. Let's, let's focus on this here. So you see, God's picture of, of a, a, a loving wife and woman is, is totally, totally fair. It really is. Verse 24, uh, page 62 of this wonderful book or Bible study, uh, where God has joined together biblical foundations for marriage. Uh, page 62, uh, commentary on verse 24, and a break background here in a... Hebraic background. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. 
The virtuous woman is industrious because her home labors produce more than the family needs. Her skills allow her to take what she has produced at home, and notice the focus is at home again, and sell products to others. And this way she contributes to the financial stability of the home as well. So there's nothing wrong with a woman contributing. I'd rather have my wife contribute in the home, not outside the home, and that's what I'm trying to work toward her uh, eventually doing. And that's what every righteous man should be doing. Anyway, it says her skills allow her to take what she has produced at home and sell products to others. In this way, she contributes to the financial stability of the home as well. Here is a good example of cottage industry in which a woman is able to gain financial advantage without leaving the domain of her primary responsibilities again. Here is a good example of cottage industry in which a woman is able to gain financial advantage without leaving the domain of her primary responsibilities. Yet even in this, she finds a balance. Her home and family are not neglected. Her home and family are not neglected in favor of producing goods for others. Again, underscore. Her home and family are not neglected in favor of producing goods for others. She is good at business. So a godly woman... A good woman, a good wife, is an entrepreneur, ladies and gentlemen. She is good at business. She knows how to make extra money in a skillful way, as the next verse emphasizes. Okay, so this is something, ladies and gentlemen, that the devil does not want you women to know. He doesn't, uh, the God does not mind you working, but he wants you to work in the home. He doesn't mind you having a business, but he wants you to have a home-based business. He wants you to focus on working at home, not out here in man's world, working like a man. That's not a woman's place in, in most cases. Now, there are exceptions to that. What if your husband dies? you got to work, right? I mean, there are, of course, exceptions. But the general rule, if you have a husband, if he's working, and if he can support you, then you should stay at home. And there are quite a few women in that situation that can stay at home, but they don't want to because they feel that they have to be independent of their husbands and they have to have a career and all that because they're brainwashed with feminism, which is of the devil. Anyway, verse 25, clothed with strength and dignity, with clothed with strength and dignity, she can laugh at the days to come. So she can laugh because she knows that everything is taken care of. They're not struggling. they got enough food. They have enough clothes. Everything is cool, okay? Uh, and this is, uh, again, in the complete Jewish Bible version for those who have just jumped on here. I, I'm thinking, I, I feel so inspired here. I think I'm going to go ahead and do another program today if I can and get this done. I want to get this done, all right? And I'm going to do all I can to get this done. Anyway, if I could, if I, uh, Blog Talk Radio will allow me to do another broadcast today. If not today, definitely tomorrow I will do another broadcast and get this over with. So I can focus on the children, how to raise children God's way next week. Anyway, verse 26, when she opens her mouth, she speaks wisely on her tongue as loving instruction. So let me uh, definitely focus on this part. This is important um, as far as instruction here. Uh, page 62, uh, verse 26, the commentary, using uh, Tim Hague's material here. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Let's understand the Hebraic background of this. The woman of valor is not, is, is not some uneducated, unintellectual craftsman who works with her hands but not with her mind. So God expects a, a loving wife and woman to be intelligent and wise. On the contrary, her success as a homemaker, wife, and mother is grounded upon her wisdom. Thus, her words are valuable. They contain wisdom learned in the course of life and from the study of Torah. The Hebrew has a Torah of kindness 
is on her tongue. Granted, Torah means teaching, so the normal English translation is accurate. However, she said it's also regularly used, that's the Hebrew, it's also regularly used throughout the Tanakh as a word associated with God's covenant faithfulness. We should just as well understand this verse as telling us that she is regularly engaged in the study of God's word. So she, a loving wife and woman, should be regularly, not occasionally, but regularly engaged in the study of God's word, and that she, therefore, is a source of wisdom for all who are around her, which is in the home in most cases. Here we see once again that the spiritual strength of the virtuous woman is tied inevitably to her understanding and implementation of God's ways. Her decisions are based upon God's wisdom, and that is why she is so successful. That's why I added that word, so, but that is why she is successful. Verse 27 of Proverbs chapter 31, she watches how things go in her home, and she doesn't eat the bread of idleness. She's, in other words, she's not lazy. Verse 28, her children rise, they make her happy, her husband too, as he praises her. And husbands, you should praise your wives when they act right. You really should. They need it. Verse 29, many women have done wonderful things, but you surpass them all. This is how a husband would think of his righteous wife. Verse 30, charm can lie, beauty can vanish, but a woman who fears Adonai, the Lord, should be praised. Give her a share in what she produces. Let her works speak her praises at the city gates. And that is a very important uh, scripture there. So, uh, verse 31, let's understand Hebraically what that means. It says, give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Literally, the Hebrew says, give her the fruit of her hands. The idea of giving her the fruit of her hands means acknowledge her for the work she has done and for the results that have been achieved. This restates the praises of the husband and children in her previous verses. Her work is substantial. It's very important. It's, the, it's what makes the fabric of society is a very important part of society. And it should be praised and respected and honored. Her work is substantial, and the fruit of her work is eternal. She ought to be recognized for the high position she fills in the family and the community. It's a very high position, you women, that you have under the man. But even if there are those outside of the family who do not recognize her high value and the supreme worth of her labors, that will not matter. In the long run, the fruit of her hands, which most likely refers to the lives of her children and husband and the way they have been cared for by her, will find praise in the gates. Her reward is seen in the way she mows and affects the lives of others through her kind and careful labors at home. And that is very important to understand, women, and you wives. So that is God's picture of a godly wife and woman. And that has not been preached by too many so-called ministers of God. It really hasn't, ladies and gentlemen. Now, let me address the issue in the remaining 19 minutes, and I'm going to come back on here hopefully today, if not today, definitely tomorrow, and finish up on this. You will receive an email. I think Blog Talk Radio does, uh, if you uh, have listened to my program before, whatever, it does send automatic emails of when the next program will be. I'm, I'm hoping to do this next program as quickly as possible. I'm hoping by maybe 2 or 3 o'clock uh, Eastern Standard Time, so come back on and listen to the completion of this Bible study, hopefully. But, as I was stating earlier, unfortunately, in today's society, uh, both the husband and wife have to work in the job market because of the oppression of the elite. Now, there's some information that you can get online to prove what I'm saying. Please Google in uh, the State of Working America. Actually, 
Google in. This is from the Economic Policy Institute. They're located in Washington, D.C. And uh, the headline to this uh, synopsis here of their um, State of Working America 2008-2009, it says, Mending Long Broken Economy is the Next Challenge. It says, New Book Traces Roots of Today's, I think their next edition is coming out sooner or already may be out for 2010, but I highly suggest that you obtain uh, this information because uh, it is factual proof that backs up what the Bible prophecies and what God states in his word. It says, New Book Traces Roots of Today's Economic Woes Through Decades of Dwindling Income, Rising Inequality, and Eroding Living Standards. So uh, the book traces the roots of today's economic woes or, or great sorrows through decades of dwindling income, rising inequality, and eroding living standards. Uh, it's Proverbs 30:14 coming alive. Today's economic crisis finds America's working families in an ever harder place. News of falling stock and housing values, failing corporate and financial institutions, and still rising unemployment and underemployment. Underemployment means that you have jobs that are not paying you based on your skills and abilities, which is a very popular case in this country. So, And the still rising unemployment and underemployment only gets at part of the problem. These recent developments are compounding a broader economic failure that has been, has been not months or years, but decades in the making. So what's going on now, ladies and gentlemen, has been decades in the making. American workers who could once count on their hard work to raise their living standards and secure a solid middle-class life have instead been treading water. Even before the perfect storm hit Wall Street, housing in the banks, the economy was already broken for the workers, says Lawrence Mitchell. EPI's president and lead author. So this is Economic Policy Institute's president and lead author. That means our challenge won't end when the recession does. Unless, and I'm going to underscore this, ladies and gentlemen. Let me drink some water. I'll be right back. It says, unless we fix, unless we fix, and I'm underscoring this, Unless we fix our broken economy, our economy is broken, ladies and gentlemen. It's been broken, really, since 2001 when the terrorist attacks occurred, actually even before then. But anyway, it says, unless we fix our broken economy so that it will start to provide fair value for work again, working families will keep losing ground. Again, let me underscore this. Unless we fix our broken economy so that it will start to provide fair value for work again, working families will keep losing ground. That lost ground is mapped in detail in the 11th edition of a book that's been called Indispensable for Understanding the Challenges of Earning a Living in America, The State of Working America, 2008-2009. I guess this is a plug for their book, but you don't have to get the book. You can get you can just go to www.e as an elephant, p as in paul, i as in it.org and get the facts on the economy something that the media and even the White House are not going to tell you accurately. Anyway, the State of Working America 2008-2009, published in its final print edition by the Economic Policy Institute and Cornell University Press, shows both where America's workers stand today and how they got there. Co-authored by Michelle Jared Bernstein and Heidi Scherholz, the book explores the growing gap between the economy's potential and its real impact on people's lives. On the potential side, the authors show that during the 2001-2007 business cycle, the nation's output, gross domestic product, 
grew 2.5% per month, nearly 20% across the full recession and recovery cycle. Now, if that healthy growth had been broadly shared or equally shared, it would have benefited people at all income levels. In reality, however, most gains were concentrated, most gains were concentrated among the wealthiest few. In reality, however, most gains were concentrated among the wealthiest few, which confirms Proverbs 30 verse 14, where the poor devour the poor off the face of the earth. In reality, however, most gains were concentrated among the wealthiest few, making this business cycle the first on record, the first on record, the first on record, in which inflation-adjusted income for middle-class families was actually lower at the end of the cycle than at its beginning. The Census Bureau first collected this data in the mid-1940s. The U.S. jobs creation machine broke down during the business cycle of 2000 to 2007, leaving millions of families facing an enormous and long-lasting threat to their economic security, said Schultz. Or Schultz, I guess. We need to rebuild our economy. We need to rebuild our economy with longer-term policies that can move us toward full employment and true shared prosperity. Now, the key findings are the following. The rich got the lion's share. From 1979 to 2006, the richest 1% more than doubled their share of the country's total income, rising from 10% to nearly 23% for an average income of about $1.3 million per household within this group. About 91% of all income growth in the country went to the top 10% by income. This confirms Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah... Uh, <laughs> quite a few other chapters in Isaiah it confirms as well. Uh, it confirms the other scriptures, in particular Proverbs 30, verse 14. About 91% of all income growth in this country went to the top 10% by income, leaving just over 9% to be parceled out among the remaining 90%. Worker output race ahead, but pay trail further behind. The typical workers' compensation wages plus benefits, which have traditionally risen in sync with with Productivity gains began falling behind in the 1970s. Since then, the gap has widened dramatically as productivity kept climbing while compensation has remained essentially stagnant. The CEO worker pay gap grew by a factor of 10 in 1973. In 1973, the average CEO was paid $27 for every dollar paid to a typical worker by 2007 that ratio had grown $275 to 1. Young workers now start out behind their peers from previous generations. Young men with only a high school education earned $2.55 less per hour in 2007 after inflation adjustment than their predecessors did in 1973, down from $14.34 to $11.79. Real hourly pay for young women fell a dollar. Five cent per hour from ten dollars and fifty cents to nine dollars and forty five cents over the same period. Hourly pay for young college grads has declined. Real hourly wages were lower in two thousand seven than in two thousand for young college educated workers. Sixty nine cents per hour lower for men, a drop from twenty one seventy eight to twenty one oh nine, and thirty two cents less for women from eighteen forty nine eighteen dollars forty nine cents to eighteen dollars and seventeen cents. These are for college educated individuals. Jobs requiring a college degree or some college are at the highest risk of being offshored. And I was just um, 
I used to work for this uh, recruiting firm for executives, and also I did a project for another uh, recruiting firm that specializes in the housing industry or in the construction industry and uh, interior design. And they are both seeking to hire people from overseas because it's cheaper for them to do that uh, I mean, company. I mean, companies are using recruiting firms like the ones I just stated. They want them to start looking for people from overseas because they know that people from overseas will will accept lower incomes than people in America. And that's what's happening. But this is telling you that that this has happened. This started happening way before it's happening now. Uh, it says jobs requiring a college degree or some college are at the highest risk of being offshore. 34% of jobs in the college degree category and 38% requiring some college are rated as highly offshoreable, meaning that they'd rather hire somebody overseas and pay them cheap than pay somebody what they're worth. And that's going on right now. The trend in the recruiting industry right now is to hire people from overseas knowing that you can pay them cheaper, thus saving the company money, because right now this country is over $70 trillion in debt right now. And no country in the history of the world has been able to uh, exist under that amount of debt. And that's what your government is not telling you. That's what the media, CBS, NBC, Fox, uh, CNNBC, are not telling you. Job growth in the most recent cycle was dramatically lower than in past ones. While job growth averaged 1.8% a year during previous business cycles, average annual growth dropped by about two-thirds to 0.6% during the 2000-2007 cycle. Remaining, I mean, regaining the jobs lost during the 2001 recession took nearly four years. So regaining the jobs lost during the 2001 recession took nearly four years, 47 months, more than twice as long as a 21-month average in all other post-World War II cycles. So anyway, we are definitely, definitely uh, in, in a bad situation, ladies and gentlemen. Let me read you these other significant facts here. It says the life expectancy gap between the economically best and worst off Americans widened significantly from 2.8 years in 1980 to 4.5 years in 2000. Among its 19 peer nations, the U.S. scores last in infant mortality. Now, this is despicable. But it says, among its 19 peer nations, the United States scores last in infant mortality. The U.S. rate of 6.9 deaths per 1,000 live births is significantly worse than Canada's second highest of 5.4 and much worse than the current of 3.9 in Greece. Four out of ten adult Americans forego needed health care due to cost. Among those with below average incomes, that proportion rises to almost 6 out of 10. So we are in bad shape, ladies and gentlemen. I have to teach you the truth. I have to tell you the truth. And in the remaining seven minutes, I'm going to cover this. And then, like I said, I'm going to come back on later on today or tomorrow and finish this. Check uh, 2 or 3 o'clock. I'm, I'm going to uh, hopefully redo this, uh, do part 3 and, and finish this um, 2 or 3 o'clock today says, this article that was produced by CNN Money, by Jeannie Sahadi, I hope I pronounced her name right, uh, she is an excellent uh, money senior writer for CNN, and the title of this, you can Google this on Google, says, are you worse off than mom and dad? So you can type in as I'm speaking here to verify what I'm telling you here says, are you worse off than mom and dad? 
Are you worse off than mom and dad? Just type that in the search engine. It says, many of us, according to the latest research, and this was done back in 2003, which only confirms what I just read you earlier from a verifiable and credible organization that researches these things. It says, many of us, according to the latest research, don't have it as easy as our parents. And this is uh, September 11, 2003. And it says, if you feel like it's harder to provide the kind of middle-class upbringing for your kids that your parents gave you, you may be right. Excuse me. Drink some water here. All right, this, this article is by Jeannie Shahadi. It says, if you feel like it's harder to provide the kind of middle-class upbringing for your kids that your parents gave you, you may be right. According to Elizabeth Warren and Amelia Warren Tayagi, co-authors of the two-income trap, why middle-class mothers and fathers are going broke. <laughs> That's an unfortunate uh, title to a book, but it says the two-income trap. The two-income trap, why middle-class mothers and fathers are going broke. The average two-income middle-class family today earns 75% more than the typical single-income family did 30 years ago. But today's family, they say, ends up with less money for everyday living expenses and savings. Why? The cost of housing and a good education are killing them. That's why. In other words, the authors argue it now takes two incomes to provide what one income provided 30 years ago when the man typically was the breadwinner. A middle-class home in a safe neighborhood with a decent public school. And then we don't have that today. We don't have a middle-class home in a safe neighborhood with a decent public school. We really don't. And that doesn't even factor in the cost of a private school or, for that matter, college, which the authors argue is now viewed as a must-do for today's parents in a way that it wasn't 30 years ago. So, too, it's paying for kids to go to a good preschool. With faith in the public school system declining, Warren and Tayagi contend bidding wars erupted for homes in what we thought to be good school districts, making homes in those areas ever more expensive. The authors also suggest that the rise in two-income families contributed to the rise in home prices since the two-income families could outbid families with only one breadwinner. So the, let me underscore this. The authors also suggest that the rise in two-income families contribute to the rise in home prices since two-income families could outbid families with only one breadwinner. So this is called the destruction of the one breadwinner. And that's not something that God ever intended, but that's what happens when women want to get out there like men and work like men. That, as I stated in Isaiah 3, verse 12, destroys the breadwinner. And that's what has happened. As a result, now you often need two incomes to be able to buy a home in a middle-class neighborhood. And here's the kicker. The two-income family appears to be more precarious in a more precarious position financially than yesteryear's one-income um, it says, and here's the kicker. Let me look up this word. Uh, I don't use this word too often here, precarious. Just want to make sure to understand what it means here. Yeah, precarious means to be dependent on uncertain conditions, uh, to be insecure. That's another word for insecurity. It says, and here's the kicker. The two-income family appears to be in a more insecure, precarious position financially than yesteryear's one-income family. And that, that's amazing, isn't it? You have two, you have two people producing two incomes and they're in a more <laughs> they're insecure more than yesteryear's one income family where in most cases the man was making an income and, and the woman was working at home. Warren and Tiagi calculate today's two earner family is 
two and a half times more likely to face a job loss than their counterpart in the early 1970s. Should one's partner's paycheck be lost or reduced, their back is against the wall, and I can definitely relate to that, and so can my wife. Families can choose to reduce what they spend on food, clothing, and savings, vacation, extracurriculars. But you can't cut back a little on the mortgage or health insurance or tuition, says Warren, a Harvard Law professor and bankruptcy specialist. So we can cut back on, well, I don't suggest you cut back on food. I totally agree or disagree on that. Uh, but clothing and, and savings and vacations, definitely you can cut back on. Uh, you should save a little money, too. But anyway, I'm going to close off here, and I'm going to kick back on the wealthy are costing you, uh, and I'm going to continue on with this Bible study today. I should be able to do it today unless uh, it's all booked for the day. And uh, uh, may God bless you and keep you. If you can't listen to this later on today, it will be on the archives. And uh, you take care, and I'm going to uh, finish this program either today or tomorrow, hopefully today. Take care, and may God bless and keep you. And for those who want to, I'll be back on here later on today or tomorrow. Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. <laughs> 